From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across Northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Marin. Hello, hello. We are here again looking at editions of The Lowlander that was sent out to the men between the 20th and the 26th of November in 1944. Yes, and the men would have been catching up on what's happening at home and what's been happening elsewhere too. We're not going to read all of the articles. We're on to seven sheets a week now, but we're going to pick out the odd bits and pieces that catch our eye. And we'll find out where the 52nd is and what they're doing at the moment or not. Mm-hmm. So while the 52nd is in Northwest Europe, what else is going on? It's a bit gloomy this week. This is the third week in November. Um, this is the week we see the first Japanese suicide submarine attack off the Carolines. Uh, US bombers based on Saipan begin their attacks on Tokyo. Adolf Hitler, he leaves his Eastern Front headquarters um, for the last time. And Heinrich Himmler orders the destruction of the crematoria at Auschwitz to eliminate evidence of the mass killings there. So not not a great week, oh really. Do you want to cheer us up a bit and tell us what the 52nd are up to? Oh, yes, of course, always. Um, well, uh, last week uh, we joined them on Walker and Island in the Shell mm-hmm. Estuary, and actually they're still there for most of the week anyway. Oh. So again, they're taking on reinforcements. In fact, all of the battalions within the 52nd took on reinforcements this week, um, making sure they got the right equipment, um, rest, uh, recuperation, and they're getting ready to move south uh, east into central Netherlands um, around the town of Sertogenbosch. Now, Sertogenbosch is a is a pretty nice little town, um, and it's on the southern bank of the River Maas. And for the next month or so, that's exactly where the 52nd Lone are going to be. They're going to be dotted around there, doing all sorts of various stuff, which I'll talk about next week. So it's a, it's a time of rest, but then they're going to be moving um, in a large convoys south, southeast into that part of Holland. That sounds all right. Do you want a quick bumper fact about Sartogenbosch? Go on then. Sartogenbosch, with its little apostrophe, the city's official name is a contraction of Des Hertogenbosch, the Duke's Forest. There you go. Well, there we go. And it is, of course, it is, of course, home to Hieronymus Bosch. The artist. Indeed. Should we get started? Yes. Good idea. Okay. 20th November. Awards are announced to 60 of the men who took part in the Arnhem operation. And then I'm going to go on very quickly to 23rd of November. Arnhem VC, an NCO of the South Staffs attached to the 1st Airborne Division, has been posthumously awarded the VC. He is John Daniel Buskerfields, who manned a six-pounder anti-tank gun. Although wounded, he continued to fire his gun until it was knocked out and then crawled to another gun whose crew had been killed. He was still firing when hit by a shell from an enemy tank. Oh, that's a bit, that's a bit much, isn't it? Um, of course, that's the first sort of mention of Arnhem in the, in the Lowlander. Um, it's, what, two months after the yeah. after the, the operation? Um, Is that how long course, it takes? Yeah, I think it's about... Well, I don't know if it, that's how long it takes. I mean, that's obviously how long it took for the VC to be announced. 
Um, but of course, uh, people may not know that the 52nd Lone Division were earmarked to land at Dillon Airfield just north uh, west of Arnhem to support First Airborne Division. And thankfully, that was called off um, mm. as as it became obvious that the, the operation was doomed. So, yeah, that's interesting. And it's also interesting they're they're mentioning the VCs. I think that's about lifting morale despite defeat, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And and maybe we'll find out if the 52nd win a VC uh, in the in the coming Maybe. 30 episodes. All right. 22nd of November, 1944. Jottings from home. P.G. Woodhouse, age 62, and his wife were arrested in Paris on Monday by the French authorities, but have since been released. So, should we catch up with Woodhouse then? Yes. Yes, because he wasn't the Nazi you think he was. Are you sure? <laughs> I don't think he was, no. So uh, three or four years before this, his uh, his stepdaughter had um, put a report in that her parents had been seemed to be stranded at their villa in Latuque, cut off from England by the German advance, I think was how she put it. He was arrested by the French and sent to an internment camp in Silesia. But then he, when he was interviewed by, um, I think it was an AP correspondent, he was found to be chiffly writing a book about American crooks. He was quite happy. Mm. He was released from internment and he was granted full freedom within Germany, hence the rumours about um, where his allegiance lay. And he, he said that he'd be creating a humorous broadcast about life in the internment camp by arrangement with the German Foreign Office. You're not really making the case very well, but carry on. <laughs> it, it, that, that didn't go over very well in Britain. Um, the House of Commons considered prosecuting Britain's broadcasting under enemy auspices under the Treachery Act, which carried a death sentence. And his friends um, made him stop. The French judiciary arrested him for alleged collaboration with the Nazis, but he was released and then he went on to lodge in a nursing home because that's one of the few places in Paris you can get a decent bed and breakfast. And he chose <laughs> he chose never to come back to Britain. He he I, um he went to the estates as well and became a citizen there in the late nineteen fifties. I think that's probably wise because he may not have been a collaborator, but he sounded like he was enjoying it a bit too much. Yeah, he he, he yeah possibly possibly a little bit too much. Twenty third of November, nineteen forty four, home news. Scotland was not forgotten when the Germans were preparing their invasion. One of the guidebooks contains detailed information of the coast from the Solway to Oban. Particular attention was paid to the Isle of Arran. Another guidebook contained a glossary of Gaelic words and a third offered a guide to Edinburgh and much information about inland waterways and marshlands. Have you seen these guidebooks? I haven't seen the guidebooks, but I, when I was back home in Scotland years and years and years ago, I think the Scotsman or the Herald, one of those newspapers, they ran a big piece on it. And I think... Um, I should point out I am actually from the Isle of Arran, so that's my, that's my link here. Um, I, I believe that Brodick Castle, which is on the Isle of Arran, a, a kind of large sort of stately home, um, was earmarked by Herman Goring to be one of his hunting lodges because it was famous for its stag hunting. But yeah, it would cause a, cause a bit of us. People on Arran got very excited, um, not because of Herman Goring, but just because the, the island was in the news. I, I wonder if this is a reference to not what we'd consider to be guidebooks, but to the books. A bit like, um, do you remember there was a thing called the Bombers Bidecker? 
Yep. Which, yep. Yeah. Okay. So I wonder if this is a, a reference to the equivalents that were prepared for, um, for for German generals to look at on almost a daily basis with huge updates about information about canals and rivers and roads and junctions and industry. It was, it was a proper sort of mm. index card system to start with, and they got turned into huge great books. Yes, I believe that's what they're talking about here. Yes. Yeah. And then the, the word escapes me, and I will find it in a minute what they're called. The word I was looking for was Militärgeografische Angaben, often abbreviated to MILGEOs. That's Militärgeografische Angaben, often abbreviated to MILGEOs. Twenty fifth of November, nineteen forty four. The Song of the Victors by N. C. W. Now you'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to sing this. What we've got is on the on the on the front of today's Lowlander in two columns. On the left hand side, we've got a report about the Rhine. I think we'll come to that in a moment. But on the right hand side, we've got the verses and the choruses to a song that's been written by somebody, NCW. And at the bottom it says the words would appear to go to the tune of It Ain't Going to Rain No More, with slight variations here and there. Anyway, it's the appropriate tune, if nothing else. I have found the tune. That's the yes. good news. Yes. The even better news is I'm still not going to sing the song, oh, but, um, okay. but, but, but I will read a little bit. Okay. Okay. All right. Here we go. We captured the Isle of Walcheren and many a Jerry Mortar. A few square yards of real dry land and a hell of a lot of water. So readers of the Lowlander, each aqua mountain airman, you've found out now that you can cow the world's most vaunted German. Well. Very good. Well done, Merrin. Um, Mo, one of the verses that jumped off the page to me was this one in the middle, and it was Goliath 1 was lots of fun, and Snowshoe wasn't dusty, but this ain't no fake, remarked General H.E. to his G1, tried and trusty. Um, well, that's uh, there's a whole load of 52nd Lone Division history wrapped up in that verse. Um, the general they're referring to is obviously Hickwell Smith, Edmund Hickwell Smith, who's the, the GOC of 52nd Lone Division. Um, and specifically, they mentioned Goliath 1. Now, Goliath was a, a large um, snow or winter exercise they took part in December 1942. And then they did another one in December 1943. And that was their confirmation uh, mountain training exercises to demonstrate that they could actually operate in the mountains in winter. Now, they had all the snow stuff with them. They were all ready to do that. But on both occasions, it just rained. Um, so it wasn't really a winter or a snow <laughs> one. Uh, and snowshoe was the last big, big snow exercise they did in the start of 1944. And actually, they okay. all stayed up on the up on the tops of the Cairngorms for a couple of weeks. And they were actually snowed in. Uh, and they did proper mountain and Arctic warfare training. So that's, cool. that's for me, that one. It clearly made an impression if, if the lad's gone on to write a song about it. Definitely, yeah. November 25th, 1944. Watch on the Rhine. 
Elsewhere on the Western Front, the day has seen no spectacular gains but steady grinding progress in most sectors. Weather, which has everywhere been dull and wet, and places foul and tempestuous has practically ruled out air support. The 1st French Army has been consolidating, strengthening its newly won positions north of Mulhouse and Belfort. 100 miles to the north, General Patton's tanks, pounding their way into the Saar Valley and its network of defences, have taken the fortress of Merzig well within the Siegfried Line. But the focal point for the whole front lies still in the battle for Cologne. Twelve German divisions, including Volkssturm, Home Guard, artillery, have massed before the city. In fighting which has reached a degree of severity unequalled since the days of Caen, they have thrown in a counterattack after counterattack against our forces entrenched around Geilenkirchen. A small village to the north of the town has been lost. In general, the attacks have been held along a 25-mile front. Two villages, a few miles northeast of Gallenkirchen, Wurm and Beek, have been the scene of some of the most savage engagements. Things are really hotting up. Yeah, just a bit. Just a bit. It's kind of like the mad dash before the real proper winter sets in. Uh, and of course, we mentioned Gallenkirchen last week, yeah. uh, which had been taken by the Americans and the British in a joint operation. Uh, and of course, the villages to the north and the east of that, which sit right on the Siegfried Line, they're um, they're proving to be a little bit more difficult to keep hold of, and the Germans are, are pretty much throwing everything they've got at it. So, who would have been involved here? What from the what around Gallenkirchen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, on the British side, you've got uh, the 43rd Wessex Division. Um, so, they're an infantry division from the so basically the southwest of England, um, and they'd been fighting all the way from Normandy. Um, and you also have the American 84th uh, Division called the Rail Splitters. Um, and supporting them was the British 8th Armoured Brigade um, and, and other supporting arms as well. So it's a, it's a combined operation okay. um, under 30 Corps. So our friend uh, Horrocks, Horrocks. Uh, Major yes. General uh, Brian Horrocks. And yeah, so the, the fighting's pretty tough, but it's a, it's a genuinely joint operation. That's where the uh, British and American armies join. And in order to have enough power to, to push into Gallenkirk, and they decided to use an American division with the British. To some success. Yeah. Hey, hey up, mother mind you thinking me, Bob? It's me, your generic stereotype wartime northern comedian. Now let me pop my ukulele down here. As you know, I like to write innuendo-laden songs that trivialise a global conflict that saw the death of 85 million people. But what I won't trivialise is a new battlefield tour starting in October 2024. Oh, you can join me and her... Walking with the Jocks, following in the footsteps of Peter White and his battle for Northwest Europe. Now, when you've stopped looking a bit of how's your father on the internet, you can go to walkingwithajocks.co.uk. That's walkingwithajocks.co.uk. Now, I'm off to write a song about power washing me patio. Tear off for now, boys and girls. Cheerio! Twenty-fifth of November. James Dewar of Aberdeen Coffin Case fame has had his appeal against the sentence of three years penal servitude rejected by the Court of Appeal. Okay. (laughs) I feel as though we need to unpack this. (laughs) Aberdeen Coffin Case fame, which suggests people know about this. Um, Please, Marin, for the love of God, tell us what's going on here. I think the lads would have heard about it already. So um, this was Councillor James Dewar. He was the director of a crematorium at Camehill in Aberdeen. 
he yep. and his undertaker friend, Alec Forbes, now that's my family name, Forbes, they had a bit oh, of God. a scam going. Yeah. It's quite a simple scam. Forbes would sell a coffin to a poor, unsuspecting family. And then before Dewar cremated the remains, Forbes would liberate the coffin or the coffin lid. And then those spare coffins were returned to the shop for resale. <laughs> or, okay. or they would flog off the coffins and the lids. And they, I mean, the, 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 the bits of wood used to pop up all over Aberdeen. Several hush-hush arrangements led to the production of tea trays and desks hutches radio cabinets on on you know almost an industrial scale anyway the, the the first hearing was held in aberdeen but the the coffin lids they brought into the courtroom to use as evidence were so strong smelling that the judge had to resort to inhaling smelling salts to prevent passing out anyway, oh god they they had to move the trial to edinburgh to make sure it was a fair trial but it was pretty open and shut case Dewart was charged with the theft of a thousand coffin lids and shrouds and Bloody forbes hell. with a, a hundred coffin lids and it took the jury 26 minutes to find them guilty Dewart got three years penal servitude forbes was given six months in prison and both of them appealed their sentences under Scots law arguing it wasn't possible to be convicted of stealing from the dead, but their appeals failed. Well, I can see the flaw in the in the <laughs> argument in that they're not stealing from the dead, they're, they're stealing, stealing from the families from the... that paid. Oh my god. I mean well, it's funny you should say um of 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 fame, because actually the fifty second uh, before they moved down south, before they came over to Europe, mm. they were actually based in and around Aberdeenshire as well. So they they almost certainly would have heard of the story. Yeah, certainly, yeah. some people in the division. But I mean, that's quite a story, isn't it? <laughs> a thousand coffin lids. We shouldn't be laughing. Do you know the thing is, some somebody somewhere will have a, a, a nice uh, a nice tea tray or a little cabinet or something that's been handed down for generations. Oh, don't don't. In Aberdeen, don't. Oh yeah, that was granddad's um, granddad's. Um, um, little cabinet there. He loved that cabinet, and and little did they realise it was a, a mega old cabinet. Twenty fourth of November, nineteen forty four, record day in air. With clear skies over southern Belgium, the Allied air forces following up on attacks in moonlight the previous night. Yesterday had a great day hammering German transport and supply centres and airfields. Of the total of 6,000 sorties, at least 2,000 were flown by 8th Air Force Liberators and Fortresses in a record effort. Escorted by 900 fighters, they streamed out in a 400-mile column on their way to the bomb airfields and German bases from Trier northwards. The RAF also sent out heavy forces out against aerodromes in the Ruhr. Up to midnight, it was known that at least 70 German aircraft were shot down, bringing the total for yesterday and Saturday to nearly 200 planes. Transport aircraft have also taken a hand in the battle, dropping supplies to isolated American pockets holding out in the rear. That's a lot of aeroplanes. Hang on a second, though. When when do we think Battle of Britain lasts from until? I think the official title is sort of 10th of July to sort of the middle of October 1940. Because this is, this is the end of November, isn't it? It is, yes. So we've still got a 400-mile column of aircraft and 6,000 sorties. So there's still quite a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, so the, 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 the Germans lost 200 fighter planes uh, in this battle. I didn't even realise the Germans had that. I mean, we, I, we should probably say to our listeners, me and you know very little about airplanes. <laughs> if it's got wings or if it floats, I'm probably going to have to look the, it up, yeah. The structure of a poem, 
got you. Uh, <laughs> if you want to know about funerals, we've got you. <laughs> just don't ask us about airplanes. So we're 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 just astonished by the sheer numbers of of, of sort. I mean, six thousand sorties, of which two thousand were flown by the Eighth Air, Air Force. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. And I should imagine they've got it in the Lowlander to kind of g people up a bit. Yeah, when, definitely. When you notice that much stuff going on above you in the sky, it probably makes you feel a little bit better. Mm, indeed. 26th of November, 1944. How to treat Germans. A correspondent has supplied us with the following five golden don'ts for dealing with Germans. His advice is not authoritative, but being drawn from a long and intimate acquaintance with enemy, ruthlessness and inhumanity, it is worth paying attention to. 1. Don't ever speak gently to Nazis. Being used to orders, they only obey firmness and determination. Gentleness is mistaken for weakness. 2. Don't hesitate to snap at them. Always demand immediate obedience, but don't blunt the edge of your orders by losing your temper too frequently. 3. Don't underrate Nazi cunning. You will find them out only after knowing them a long time. 4. Don't disbelieve any stories of their atrocities. They can and do behave in a way we cannot understand, inflicting cruelties beyond our imagination. 5. Don't let up for one moment. You must always be on your guard against treachery and ambushes. I'm sorry, the only thing I've got in my mind is that meme with the guys doing, are we the baddies? Yeah. Well, the Nazis very much are the baddies if you go on, if you go on, <laughs> on, on this. Uh, I mean... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that all, all rings true. That is definitely the way to deal with Nazis. In fact, it's actually true for today. It is. It is. If you ever see any Nazis online or in the street, just follow these five. <laughs> I love how they say how to treat Germans, and then what they completely they completely flick to Nazis only. They don't want to mention Germans again. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting piece, and, and uh, I think a handy little note to have. 24th of November, Bergen-op Zoom and the British Army. Holland is rich in associations for the British Army. Many are well known, but one connected with Bergen-op Zoom is less familiar. About 150 years ago, at the opening of the wars with revolutionary France, a British expeditionary force landed in Western Holland. As in 1940, there were fierce skirmishes in the narrow, winding streets of Bergen. In one, a British soldier, a guardsman with many years' service, was killed. His commanding officer, Colonel Wellesley, approached the dying man but was waved away with the remark, It's all right, sir. It's all in a day's work. Many years later... <laughs> I can't laugh! Right, OK. Get a great woman. That was, a good, that was, that was your best Dickensian... Workhouse accent, well done. I was very impressed. Concentrate, concentrate. Many years later, Arthur Wellesley, now the Duke of Wellington, was asked to suggest a typical soldier's name to complete a specimen pro forma used in claims for increased pay. The name he chose was not imaginary. It was the name of the man who fell at Bergen, Thomas Atkins. Well, I never. Mm. And of course, Bergen ups him. Yes. Is the headquarters of the 52nd Lowland Division while they're in this part of the Netherlands. So while they're in Walcheren and South Beveland and around the Scheldt. It so it's a, it's a story. And, and of course, Tommy Atkins uh, is ubiquitous with the, the British Tommy in Second World War. Although I think we should probably call him Tommy McAtkins. 
because technically <laughs> speaking, really? it's a Scottish division. So from now on, if we mention Tommy Atkins, we are going to call him Tommy McAtkins. Done deal. All right. Quackety ping. And finally, for this week's thought for the day, we go to the 26th of November, 1944. I raised such men as had the fear of God before them and made some conscience of what they did. And from that day forward, I must say to you that they were never beaten. Oliver Cromwell. I've got a feeling we should be, we're getting to know Oliver Cromwell quite a bit. I mean, it's a good way of alienating our Irish listeners in one go, isn't it? <laughs> it is a bit. I've also got views on Cromwell, but I think most well, he, well, 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 he, ba- he banned Christmas and dancing, didn't he? Yes, he did. He, he did. I mean, come on, he did more than that. He raised taxes. Um, what was it called? It was called the decimation tax, wasn't it? Uh, was I, a- I'm, I'm not aware of that. I'm just. I'm still can't get over the banning the dancing and the and the <sighs> Christmas. To be honest, it was a, it was a ten percent income tax on um, royalist households. Uh, okay. Oh well. Okay, that makes sense. Now, uh, I'm not saying I don't understand it. Perhaps you could just explain what that thought for the day actually means. Obviously, uh, I do understand it. Yes, of course you do. Um, he's just reflecting on how good his army is, I think. Yeah, of course he is probably, the thing he is also famous for is actually uh, his military command, although he was obviously become the, the, the Lord Protector and, and basically a dictator. He was, during the Civil War, regarded as a, one of their best military commanders, wasn't he? He was. Um, I don't think that gets him any grace or favour, though. I mean, no. some people would say that he, he kept the country together during a period of change. Um, and he puts, I think they actually call him the father of democracy, don't they? Because he put the constraints on monarchy. But I think right. if Parliament asks you to put down uprisings and the next thing you do is murder about 7,000 people, that's not very democratic, yeah. is it? No. Well, maybe we'll hear from Oliver Cromwell again. Yes. I think on that note, we should call it a day, don't you? I I really do, yes. All right. I'll see you next time. Yep, see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced and presented by Andy Aitchison and Merrin Walters. This was a hellish good production. Now the classified football results for the week commencing the 20th of November 1944. English League South Chelsea 2, Arsenal 1 Clapton 03, Millwall 2 Crystal Palace 3, West Ham 0 Portsmouth 0, Brighton 1 Queen's Park Rangers 7, Luton 1 Reading 4, Brentford 4 Southampton 7, Aldershot 2 Tottenham 2, Fulham 1 Watford 3, Charlton 2 English League North Accrington 0, Burnley 5 Birmingham 2, Walsall 2 Blackburn 1, Oldham 1 Blackpool 4, Halifax 2 Bolton 0, Preston North End 0 Bradford 5, Newcastle 2 Chesterfield 0, Derby 1 Coventry 0 Aston Villa 6 Crewe 1 Everton 5 Darlington 3 Bradford 2 
Gateshead 5, Hull 2. Hartlepool 3, Leeds 0. Huddersfield 5, Middlesbrough 1. Leicester 2, Northampton 2. Lincoln 2, Nottingham Forest 2. Liverpool 3, Bury 1. Manchester City 4, Manchester United 0. Mansfield 0, Doncaster 2. Notts County 1, Sheffield United 0. Port Vale 3, Stoke City 0. Rochdale 1, Southport 1. Rotherham 1, Barnsley 0. Sheffield Wednesday 2, Grimsby 3. Stockport 0, Wrexham 3. Sunderland 3, York 3. Tramier Rovers 2, Chester 3. West Bromwich Albion 3, Wolves 2. English League West. Bristol City 4, Aberaman 2. Cardiff City 6, Bath City 2. Lovells 2, Swansea 1. Scottish League South. Albion Rovers 0, St Mirren 0. Clyde 2, Hibs 3. Dumbarton 2, Motherwell 6. Hamilton 5, Adrianians 0. Hearts 2, Celtic 0. Morton 3, Third Larnock 1. Queen's Park 5, Partick Thistle 2. Rangers 4, Falkirk 0. Scottish League North East. Arbroath 0, Aberdeen 3. Dundee 1, East Fife 1. Dunfermline 3, Hearts 2. Falkirk 0, Rangers 1. Rafe Rovers 1, Dundee United 1. Eastern Command 2, South East Command 1. Gillingham 7, London Universities 3. REF 1, Scotland 7. Fantastic. That's the whole of Scotland versus the whole of the RAF. Yeah. Go on, Scotland. Good. 